I'm not so much going to preach this morning as I'm just going to worship. I want to look at Jesus and invite you to join me in that. Colossians 1.15 says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And right about there, I think the angels started singing. And I don't know for sure, but I think Paul, as he's writing this, has tears flowing down his face as he's writing this poem, this song that was a song in the early church. And my hope is that this message will be a song, too. That, 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 that this message will be just exalted. I'm not going to teach. I'm just going to worship this morning. I want to recognize, I want to celebrate the supremacy of Jesus Christ because it's all about Jesus. You see, when you got up this morning, you looked at your cell phone because I know you. You looked at your cell phone and you saw a date there, and the date said August 4th, 2019. Now, you don't think about this very often, but the year 2019 is 2019 years from what? Well, the, the, the dating actually is a bit off. It's not perfect, but it's supposed to be 2019 years from the birth of this little baby Jesus. And again, we don't think about this very often, but you can't look at your cell phone without being indirectly reminded of the name Jesus. Because everything that's ever happened on this planet falls into the category of before Jesus or after Jesus. And in fact, if you had to choose the name of one single person who's had the biggest impact on the history of the world since the beginning of recorded time, that one life that's touched every continent, every nation, there is just one name. Just one, Jesus, because it really is all about Jesus from beginning to end. It's kind of funny, actually. It's kind of amazing. Jesus was born 20 centuries ago to an impoverished couple in an obscure village in an unimportant corner of the world. Maybe a few hundred people actually met him in his lifetime. Maybe a few thousand actually heard him speak. He never traveled outside his region. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never led an army. He never governed a nation. He wasn't even a major landowner. He didn't found a business. The Romans, as far as we know, didn't even even consider him significant enough to record his execution. And yet, over the next 2,000 years since his incarnation, that one name would inspire the founding of more universities, among them Oxford and Harvard and Yale and Cambridge and others. That one name would inspire the creation of more hospitals, the launching of more charities, the writing of more books, the expression of more great art than any other name in history. H.G. Wells, who wasn't a Christian uh, and has been called, uh, along with Jules Verne, as the father of science fiction, wrote the following. 
More than 1,900 years later, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. Because apparently he even knew it was about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, 19th century orator, wrote, Christ is the great central fact in the world's history. To him, everything looks forward or backward. All the lines of history converge upon him. All the great purposes of God culminate in him. Phil Yancey wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And he has a a great story, and the way he has a lot of stories in there. It's a good book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And he tells a story of President Nixon, who who got a little carried away with excitement Uh, in 1969 when the Apollo astronauts landed on the moon, the president exclaimed, it's the greatest day since creation. Until Billy Graham respectfully reminded him of Christmas and Good Friday and Easter. Oh, yes, said the president. And, of course, Billy Graham was right by any measure of history. The Galilean who, in his lifetime, spoke to less people than would fill even one stadium that Billy Graham filled over and over and over again. He changed the world more than any other person in history so that the name of Jesus now commands the allegiance of one-third of the people on the planet. And as impressive as that is, one day it's not going to be a third. One day it's going to be 100% because there is coming a day where every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. Today, people even use Jesus' name to curse by. I was at a football practice not long ago for one of our sons, and uh, a pass was thrown to a receiver who most of the time catches the ball, but on this occasion dropped the ball And the head coach, or one of the coaches, uh, called upon the name of the Lord. He wasn't worshiping. Have you ever noticed that when a a, a receiver drops the ball, nobody says, Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) You know, somebody misses a putt, they they never say, Mahatma Gandhi, Dr. Seuss. They They don't do that. D. James Kennedy wrote a book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And and he reflects on that classic 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have seen that movie, It's a Wonderful Life? You've probably probably all seen it. Jimmy Stewart's character gets a chance to see what life would have been like if he had never been born. Well, so so Kennedy asking his question, what if Jesus had never been born? So he reflects on his Jesus' impact on history, on education, on helping the poor, on civil liberties, on science, on the abolition of slavery, on economics, health and medicine, morality, music and the arts, and he comes to the conclusion it's almost impossible to imagine our world without Christ. Do you know why? Because it really is all about Jesus. The fact is the power of that one name would move more people to sacrifice their finances, their possessions, their safety, their careers, even their own lives than any other name in history. Napoleon, who I'll probably never ever quote again from the pulpit, 
said this, I know men and I tell you this Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And it raises the obvious question, doesn't it? At least to me, why? Like, why do we keep coming back every Sunday? What, what is it about this name Jesus? What is it about this man that continues to inspire and move and haunt and captivate and entrance an entire planet full of people? Well, I'm sure a lot of people give a lot of answers to that, but how about the one that we have in our text this morning? It's Paul's answer, Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image there is the word icon or icon or icon in Greek. It's, we get our English word icon. And basically, here's what Paul's saying. Think, think of it, the analogy this way. When I have a computer and I, when I type out my notes, I type it in the, uh, um, a word document. So it's the program word. But when I open my computer, I can't see the program. It's invisible, to me at least. I can't see the program. But there's a little icon down at the bottom of the screen. And if I take the cursor and I click on the icon, it opens the program word. And now I can see the program word and type my document. It is clicking on the icon that opens up that which is invisible. Here's what Paul is saying. Um, God is invisible. You can't see God. We can't look around and, and see him this morning. We can't see God. And, and you might say, well, what does he look like? What is he like? Paul's saying, if you want to know what God is like, click on the icon. When you click on Jesus, it opens the program. Now you can see what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Look at verse 16. Here, here's why we keep coming back. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So creation, the universe, it, it's about Jesus. It's by Jesus. It's for Jesus. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. You know what he's saying? The church is about Jesus. This church is about Jesus. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the elders. It's not even about you. It's about Jesus. Creation is about Jesus. The church is about Jesus. The Bible from beginning to end, with all of its confusing and sometimes disturbing and very messy stories, the Bible is, is the story of Jesus. The Old Testament, at the end of the day, with all this weird stuff in the Old Testament that is like, I don't even understand all of it. The, the whole point of the Old Testament is just preparation for Jesus. It is pointing us to, it's all pointing us to Jesus. You remember in, in Acts chapter 8, there's a story of this guy, Philip, and, and an angel appears to him, sends him on the road to Gaza, and he goes down and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch, which would be a bummer. Uh, and, and he worked for the Fed, for Queen Candace. Um, and uh, he's sitting there reading Isaiah 53. And Philip comes up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, how can I understand it? I mean, is this guy talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? And here's what Acts 8 verse 35 says, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news 
about Jesus. Philip preached Jesus from Isaiah. Do you know why? Because Isaiah is about Jesus. Or how about the, you remember the story of the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus? You know, Jesus has just risen from the dead, but they don't know this. Apparently, they're walking down the road. Jesus appears. Jesus is like playing a joke on them or something. They don't recognize him. Jesus is like, why are you upset? They're like, what is your internet down? You didn't know, hear about this guy, Jesus. We thought he was going to be the savior of the world. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. We thought, we thought, we thought. And Jesus says, how slow are you of heart to not understand what was written? And then in verse 47, 27 of Luke 24, it says this. Now listen, you may have tried to read the Bible and, and you say, you know, it, it didn't work for me. I didn't get it. I, I, I didn't, it didn't change anything. And the reason was you didn't understand this one verse. This one verse is one of the keys to interpreting the entire Bible. It says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, can you imagine being in this Bible study? Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses. All the prophets, all of the scriptures, it's all about Jesus. All the scriptures from beginning to end are all 66 books of the Bible are pointing us to Jesus. In Genesis, Jesus is the ram at Abraham's altar. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the great high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the city of our refuge. In Joshua, he's the scarlet thread out Rahab's window. In Judges, he is our judge. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's our reigning king. In Ezra, he's our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of everything that is broken. Because it's all about Jesus. In Job, he is our redeemer who ever liveth. In Psalms, he is my shepherd, and I shall not want. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. In Song of Solomon, he is the beautiful bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, Jesus is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he makes the valley of dry bones live again. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the midst of a fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is my love that is forever faithful. In Joel, he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is our savior. In Jonah, he is the great missionary concerned about our city. In Micah, he is the messenger with beautiful feet. Because it's Jesus, you guys, it's Jesus. In Nahum, he is... The original Avenger. (laughs) Read Nahum. In Habakkuk, he is the watchman that is ever praying for revival. In Zephaniah, he is the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer of our lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is our foundation. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And it doesn't stop there because in Matthew, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. In Mark, he is the miracle worker. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the door by which all of us have to enter. In Acts, he's the shining light that appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. Because the New Testament is about Jesus too. You see, in Romans, he's our justifier. 
In 1 Corinthians, Jesus is our resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he's our sin bearer. In Galatians, he is amazing grace. In Ephesians, he is the unsearchable riches of God. In Philippians, he's a slave, obedient unto death. In Colossians, he is the fullness of the Godhead in a body. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he's the soon and coming king. In 1 and 2 Timothy, he is the only mediator between God and man. In Titus, he is our blessed hope. In Philemon, he's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he is the blood of the everlasting covenant. In James, it is the Lord who heals the sick. In 1 and 2 Peter, he's the chief shepherd. In 1, 2, and 3 John, it is Jesus who has the tenderness of love. In Jude, he is the one who is able to keep you from falling. And in the book of Revelation, lift up your your eyes. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because it's all about Jesus. So let's review our worship service thus far. Creation is about Jesus. The universe is about Jesus. This church is about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus, this service, this day, is about Jesus. Your family is about Jesus. Your life is about Jesus. So I think the appropriate response is worship. And we're going to do that, and we're going to continue to do that with communion. Because you see, another reason it's all about Jesus is that Jesus didn't just create the world, which Paul says here. Paul goes on. This this hymn, this poem, this song keeps going. And he says he not only created everything, he recreated the world. Having reconciled all things to himself, verse 20 of Colossians 1, by making peace through the blood of his cross. What does that mean? It means this, you don't save yourself. Jesus is the Savior. Not only did he create you for himself, he he reconciled you to himself. Very next verse. Look at the very next verse. Verse 21 of Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And just stop right there for a second. By the way, that was all of us. If you're visiting New Life this morning, you should just know that here's one of the things we believe here. Ain't nobody here better than anybody else. But because we were all enemies, basically, here's what Paul's saying. There's a line, on that side of the line was God, on this side of the line was everybody else. Because we were alienated, we were enemies of God. Because of our evil behavior, we were all that way. You know, I came across a verse that, I obviously read this before, but for whatever reason, I read it like two weeks ago. Again, it just struck me. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Have you ever seen this? I, maybe you probably have. And you're like, of course, I've seen that many times. But for whatever reason, it just slapped me in the face. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. You know, some verses, it's kind of hard to know what they mean. Like, like what, what are you trying to say there? I don't get it. That was pretty clear. Ain't nobody righteous in themselves and always does what is right and never sins. There's no one righteous, no, not one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own ways. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The ground is level around the cross. 
but look at the next verse. Look at this next verse. Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Notice a couple of things about that verse. Number one, he, he doesn't say, hey, when you die, this will be true. He says, but now. You've been reconciled. Look at this. To present you holy in his sight. If you are in Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your righteousness. He sees Jesus' righteousness. Holy, you are holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, the truth is, we're getting ready to come to communion. And the truth is, some of you here, you don't feel free from accusation. Because you keep hearing these voices that are accusing you. Voices that remind you. Voices that tell you. It's like shame is like this invisible tether, right? It wants to pull you back. But I want you to know that's not God. Look at the verse. Look at the verse. To present you holy in his sight now without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus says, you are now, because of what he did on the cross, holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. I want you to let the beauty of that truth sink in for just a moment. I'm going to read it again. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Which means, Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, has made you worthy of fellowship with God himself. Not in and of yourself. He has made you worthy to receive communion. To commune with God himself. 